0: Good morning, everybody. Glad to be back. We are the few and hopefully the warm. My fingers are freezing right now. Um, I went out to my Jeep, forgot that it had snowed, and I had to just brush all the snow off with my bare hands, and I just have not recovered. So uh, let's start with a, a word of prayer. <clears throat> Almighty God, I I beseech you to inject yourself into this class this morning, into our church, that your Holy Spirit will be present, that you will guide our our hearts and our thoughts, that we will understand more about your word, that you have made it to be what it is, that you have shepherded it through the centuries, that we have, by your grace, received it, and by it, we can know you. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so... This morning, I'm going to be talking about, as we're talking about church history, uh, before we start talking about the history of the church, I wanted to talk a bit about the history of the bedrock of the church, which is the canon of Scripture. I'm not going to talk about the Old Testament today. That's a, a whole nother ball of wax. I mean, and, and obviously that goes back into, into Jewish history before the church. So suffice it to say that the, the canon of the Old Testament is accepted at the time of Christ and, and we have received it from that point on. Um, so today I'm going to specifically be talking about the New Testament. And that leads me to the obvious question, what does canon mean? Why, when we say the canon of Scripture, what what is that? What does that mean? And, and canon, when we talk about Scripture, you'll note on the, the notes, it's C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N. So I will let Brandon be the, the canon C-A-N-N-O-N of church here. He can blast it at us. Um, and I mean that in a good way. Um, so, but the canon is... Those are the accepted books of the New Testament. If I were to start off class this morning and ask everyone to please open to the Gospel of Thomas, where in your Bible would you find that? You, you wouldn't. No, it's not in the Apocrypha. It's, it is not a part of the Bible. It is not canon. It is not accepted by the church. has never been accepted by the church. It is not what we call... You know, Canon. Canon comes from the Greek word. It's really hard to pronounce. Canon in Greek. Um, you can see it's spelled a little differently there. But, uh, and it literally just means rod, is what it means in Greek. And when we say rod, the way that the church began using that was like a, a measuring rod. So this is the measurement of what is considered acceptable to be scripture and what is not considered acceptable to be scripture. It is the standard. So when we talk about canon, we talk about what is, what measures up as the word of God. <coughs> so I have, I mean, I'm sure we all know it, but I listed out the the books of the New Testament there. There's 27 books in the New Testament. And that is, sorry, is important because as we pierce a little deeper into this, you'll see, we will see that while the books themselves are, most of them are going to be accepted immediately and broadly, there are going to be some that are not going to be accepted immediately and broadly, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, so... I just thought it would be good for everyone to have that lined out so you when I say general epistles Pauline epistles you know what I'm talking about um, so why is this important it's important for a lot of reasons but in the, it is at at the core this is the foundation of our church we are we would say Bible believing church well What's the Bible? How do we how do we know what is and is not included in the Bible? We take it for granted now that there are 27 books in the New Testament. But has that always been the case? Has the church always taken it for granted that there's 27 books in the New Testament? If a letter is written to the Colossians, how did that come to be accepted by a church in Spain or in America you know what was the process by which those books became accepted as authoritative and as normative and as being accepted as the inspired word of god so that's that's what we want to talk about today is is how that process came to exist uh, came to take place And I'm going to weight this a little more to the historical side, but there's a theological side, too, as well, and we'll get to that at the end. If we veer into the theological, we'll never never leave. So, um, I know, I I only have an hour, though. So, uh, first off, (coughs) a couple things to keep in mind is that, and we're going to circle back to this, at the end, is that even though we, we are a Bible-believing church, and, and this may sound kind of odd for some people, but trust me, I mean, we can talk about it later if we need to, but it's not Scripture itself that is the foundation, but it's Jesus Christ himself. Script, what is Scripture attesting to? Jesus Christ to the work of Jesus Christ. So, really, when we talk about Scripture, we're, we're we're holding that up as our authority because it is attesting to the work and to the person of Jesus Christ. And so that that really is the foundation of the church. You know, not it's not just the Bible, but it's really what the Bible is pointing us to. So, uh. There was a time in the church when they had no scripture. So it depends on when you start, when you work on the dating of the New Testament books. There is a a minimum, when I say dating, I mean when they were written, when we can figure out when in time they were written. There is at least a minimum of 10 years before the first book of the Bible was written, and just because it was written doesn't mean that every church suddenly had that book of the Bible it takes time for those to disseminate throughout the Roman empire so what is the authority for the church at that time it's the apostles it's the teaching of the apostles <clears throat> and so we have to keep that in mind as we be, as we talk about the scripture because when we talk about, here's a, a word that we don't use every day, the canonicity of a book, people are going to point to the apostolic authority that it has. So, But for a time, there is only going to be the apostles' teaching and the oral tradition that comes from them. When Peter preaches at Pentecost... Word is going to get out about what he says. And what Peter said at Pentecost is going to be authoritative for believers. They don't have a gospel yet. I mean, they don't have one of the four gospels. I mean, Peter is preaching the gospel, but you understand what I'm saying. They don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't have Romans. They don't have Jude or James. They have what Peter said at Pentecost. So there's going to be a time in the church when there is no scripture There's going to be a time maybe in the future of the church, and I don't mean this, you know, theologically, but where the church has no scripture. What happens during persecution when they burn the Bibles? You know, we still are going to be a Bible-believing church, but what's going to be the foundation of the church? Jesus Christ. So we have to be aware, at least, of these other foundations that exist for us. So When the apostles began to die out, that other form of authority is going to begin to fade. And the scriptures then are going to become more and more and more authoritative. But what were the scriptures? That's going to be the question that we're going to talk about today. So, oh, one other thing. So you can turn to the second page of your notes now. One other thing I wanted to, to talk about, too, was, was that to some degree, the Scriptures are, the, the New Testament Scriptures are self-authenticating. I mean, we all know 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. So all Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. So the author's are being inspired they're writing these words down that the holy spirit is inspiring now they're not writing them down like they are a robot and the holy spirit is guiding their hands the character of each of the authors is still embedded in each of these works you can tell john and his writings from paul and his writings and from luke and from mark i mean mark is really not very good at greek so i mean it's true he's the greek in mark is very rough the Greek in Luke is very polished it's, there's very, they are different men being inspired to write by the same Holy Spirit, but they just as, just as Jesus Christ himself is fully God and fully man, so too are the scriptures a reflection of that. they are holy and divine and inspired by God, but man still has his part in writing it down. So there, th- it is a reflection of who Jesus Christ himself is, even in that way. But there's other parts of, <coughs> of the New Testament that help point us to equating it with the Old Testament. If you want to turn to 1 Timothy 5.18 we can get a sense of that. And there's a f- there's, I only want to talk about a couple places, but there's a few other places in the New Testament where we see this taking place um, <clears throat> but whoa. W- so 1st Timothy 5.18 Paul says if I can turn to it uh, he says for the scripture says so know what he says for the scripture says he doesn't say for the Old Testament says or for these new things that are coming out now they say he is just speaking cohesively. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, what is that? As you can see in the notes, the first part of that is a quote from Deuteronomy. It's 25.4. But the latter part, the laborer deserves his wages, is a quote from Luke 10.7. So Paul is equating both something stated in the, old, in, the, in the Torah with something stated in the Gospels. Together, he says, they are the Scriptures. So from the beginning, even as the Scriptures, as the New Testament is being written down, the Holy Spirit is asserting the e- equality of the Old Testament in the New Testament both as sources of revelation from God. Another example of that you can uh, turn to second Peter three I always thought that this was kind of a a humorous passage. I mean, it's a really, really important passage, but you know peter you can almost feel his his dumbfoundedness with how esoteric Paul can get, but uh, In 2 Peter 3, uh, 15 and 16, he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, which he speaks in term of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures." So what are the other scriptures? Well, at the minimum, it's the Old Testament. That's what the church first had in its possession when Christ ascended, and after Pentecost, they had the Old Testament. So it's gonna be at least 10 years before they have the New Testament beginning to be written down. So, Even within the Scripture, the New Testament itself, we see self-authentication for the New Testament. Does that make sense? So that's an important testimony that we have. And we, I mean, and we know, you know, all the... Well, anyway. So now we start to get into the history. The history of what, uh, how the church came to accept the 27 books of the New Testament. Before I start on that, any any questions? No? Okay. Um, so the church, you know, we have to understand what the church looked like at this time. I mean the church is largely but not totally within the confines of the Roman Empire. So you have Christians moving around on the the roads that the Romans so capably built and effectively united an empire that stretched from the Euphrates River to Gibraltar in Spain, from the sands of the Sahara and the the southern reaches of of Egypt on the Nile River all the way up into Scotland. So the Roman Empire is is effectively uniting and and binding together all of these incredibly disparate areas. And so when Paul is going to go on his missionary journeys. And when other apostles and their followers are going to go on their missionary journeys, they're going to be traveling around on these roads or they're going to be sailing on the Mediterranean as Paul also does, but going from port to port to port throughout the Roman empire. And Rome itself, the capital, is going to be a massive gravitational pull for Christians and the church in Rome is going to be established very early and especially after the Jewish wars when Jerusalem is destroyed the church in Rome is gonna start growing even more after that as the Jews are dispersed throughout the empire but a lot of them are gonna travel ironically to Rome. So you're gonna see churches springing up in all of these places throughout the empire it's not long that you see churches in the Western Mediterranean. North Africa, what we would now call Tunisia and Algeria, that was actually one of the, the hotbeds of Christianity in the early church. You're going to see a significant number of really, really important events in the early history of the church that we'll get into in later classes all taking place in North Africa. If anyone's ever heard of St. Augustine, he's from North Africa. So his church that he pastored was in North Africa. And there's plenty of others that we'll talk about when we, when we get to that point. But you're going to see these places all throughout the empire. And over time, and, and rather swiftly, we're going to see them all accepting the core of the books of the 27 books of the New Testament. So... Before we go any further, I I just want to, if you want to flip back to that first page and you look at the the books of the New Testament, if you want to put a check mark, or you can just, you don't even have to check it off if you want to. The Gospels, all four Gospels, the book of Acts, and most of Paul's epistles are going to be accepted by the church almost immediately. And we're going to talk about how we know this here in a minute. But right off the bat, those are going to be accepted. There's not going to be any, dis- like any significant dispute over whether those are authentically inspired by God within the church. Now, some of the general epistles and revelation, uh, various general epistles, there, it's not a single block, but certain ones are going to be disputed at times. So the challenge for the church is going to be coming to an agreement over what is and is not authentic for, you know, for, for faith and for doctrine and things like that. In particular, Second Peter is going to be one of the most challenged. Revelation, it's interesting, and I, I didn't include this in the timeline that I have in the notes, so I'm going to just skip ahead a little bit, but Revelation, there's going to be a group of heretics called the Montanists. And we're going to talk about them during Sunday school when we get to that period of the church history. So I'm not going to go into depth about it here. But suffice to say, the Montanists really, really, really liked the book of Revelation and abused it heavily. And because of that, even though Revelation was accepted very early on in the church and pretty widely. The regions where the Montanists were most prevalent are going to end up sort of swinging the pendulum too far the other way and they're going to just reject Revelation as being authentic. And it's going to take time for that wound that was caused by the Montanists to heal and for the church, even in those areas where they had suffered from the montanist uh, scourge are they're going to finally accept uh revelation as well so it's going to take a few hundred years the other ones are you know they're they're challenging in various ways like the problem with hebrews that a lot of people had was they don't know who wrote it so what apostle wrote hebrews maybe maybe paul maybe barnabas Origen, who's one of the great fathers of the early church, we'll talk about him again too. You're going to hear a lot of names that we're going to come back to in class, not today, but in weeks. But Origen had a famous line where he said, the author of the book of Hebrews is known only to God. So at the end of the day, we can guess who wrote Hebrews, but at the end of the day, only God knows. But because we don't know for sure who wrote it, a lot of people said, well, maybe we shouldn't accept Hebrews. Or, you know, there's a big, there's a challenge in, under, in understanding how Jude and Second Peter came about. I, you know Jude is a very short book, but almost half of the very short book that is Jude is actually almost verse by verse quoted from Second Peter. So there's very little original material in the book of Jude. Plus, who's Jude? Well, we can figure that out. And the church figured it out pretty early on. And the church found value in Jude. And we'll talk about that again towards the end. But these are the kinds of questions people are having as to why they're saying not Jude, not Hebrews, not Second Peter. Does that make sense? They have good reasons, but the church has to figure it out. So <clears throat> what can we look to historically as when we can see uh, the canon really coming together? and the first time we can see that is about AD 150. And now keep in mind, we talk about the closing of the canon. That's when the last book would have been written. So the last book of the New Testament is generally believed to have been written sometime around AD 90, and that would be the book of Revelation. There's a chance it could have been written earlier, but we can say for certain that around A.D. 90 or at least at the latest A.D. 100, the canon is closed. All 27 books have now been written. So about 50 years later, there's another heretic, and we'll talk about him some too, named Marcion. And he is going to break away from the church, and he's going to lead a lot of followers with him. And the thing that is really driving him crazy is he was not a fan of Jews, and so he tried to strike anything Jewish out of the church. So for him, he, the only books of the New Testament that he would, well, first of all, he just rejected the Old Testament completely. That was out. The only books in the New Testament were all of Paul's letters and the Gospel of Luke, which he heavily edited. Some people call it the Gospel of Marcion, but it's still Luke, but very heavily edited. Thank you, Thomas Jefferson, for also doing the same thing. Um, Nothing new under the sun, you know what I mean? So, uh, he, and I think that's, he didn't even uh, accept all of Paul's letters. He only accepted 10 of Paul's letters. So there's three that he rejects. And then all the pastoral epistles, except for Jude, he rejects. What does that tell us? So in his rejection of all of these books, what he's telling us is that the church actually is accepting them. So it's like a test positive in the negative, if that makes sense. When he says, I reject Hebrews, because it's a pretty Jewish book, what he's telling you is the church is accepting Hebrews. So Marcion is actually helping us figure out what the canon was very early on in the church. Within 120 years of, of Christ's crucifixion, we already have a pretty good idea that the church already accepted all 27 books of the Bible, of the New Testament. If I say Bible instead of New Testament, you know what I'm talking about, because I'm probably going to say it again. So, um, go, go ahead. We're going to talk about him in class. So I, that's, I don't I want to, we're not going to go there right now. But we will, we will get to him when we start talking about the chronological history of the church. So did you have a question? Of the church? Um, by 150, I would say no. Earlier on, yes, they were. But especially after the Jewish wars, which ended in 71, AD 71, um, it's when, yeah, I mean, that temple is destroyed as in the course of those wars. You know, it's interesting. We all think of that as the end of Jews in, in Judea or I- in Palestine or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's not. In 138, so still before Marcion, in 138, in AD 138, there's what's called the Bar revolt, and that's against the Roman Emperor Hadrian. And it's during the Bar Kokhva revolt that's the final end of the Jews in Judea. It's at that point that Hadrian comes in, totally wipes them out. I mean, the Jews are just decimated. There pretty much are no Jews left in Judea. The only Jews left are those that have already been dispersed. He tears down the city of Jerusalem. He renames it Ilia Capitolina. Ilia was Hadrian's middle name, so he's naming it the Hadrianic capital, and he ends the Roman practice of calling Judea, Judea, and he calls it Palestine, which is the Latin word for Philistines. No joke, that's what Palestine literally means. It's the Latin word for Philistine. And so that, and from that point on, that is the end of Judea, and to this day, until the founding of the modern state of Israel, it was called Palestine. That's why it's called Palestine. You can thank the Roman Emperor Hadrian for that. So, being that Bar Kokhba took place in 138, by Marcion's time, the Jews are really back on their heels. I mean, there aren't a lot of them left, and the church is already becoming increasingly less Jewish by that point. And it, for all I know, may, I mean, and I, this is total speculation, but maybe Marcion's vehement dislike of Jews could have been because, I mean, maybe he was in the Roman army and, you know, fought against the Jews during Bar Kokhba. I don't know. But he really didn't like them. So anyway, suffice that to say, (coughs) uh, in giving us his acceptance and rejection of various books, what he's telling us is that the church was accepting all of these books. Then the next list we get is, is, comes about 20 or 30 years later, and it's what we call the Muratorian Fragment, or some people call it the Muratorian Canon. And the Canon accepts all the books of the New Testament except for Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter. So again, those, those disputed books where people had various reasons as to why they didn't like them. And... and by this time, those books that are in dispute are, some, are being called the anti-legomena. Just those that are not coming with the others is what it would mean in Greek. Uh, and the Muratorian canon also includes one called the Apocalypse of Peter. But on that list, and we have fragments of this, this work, the Apoc- on the list he even notes that most churches don't accept the Apocalypse of Peter. and and that some do, but that work then fades pretty quickly after that, and we never hear from it again. So so by 170, 180, we have most of the books of the New Testament already being accepted by the church, widely dispersed throughout the empire. There's just a few hangers-on, mostly in the general epistles, and in some areas, Revelation, where people are not accepting them as authoritative. They're not even saying, these aren't legit. They're just saying, we're not sure about these, so let's not base our teaching off them. But over time, they are gonna, those last few are going to be brought into the canon. And by 367, uh, a great leader of the church, one of the great heroes of the faith, a man named Athanasius. And we're going to talk a lot about Athanasius uh, in a few weeks. He's going to send out what's called his festal letter. And in that festal letter, he is going to, and, and for what it's worth, Athanasius is effectively the leader of the church throughout the Roman Empire. He's not the Pope. He lives in Egypt. And he's not claiming leadership of the whole church. He's kind of like, and this may be a really, really bad example, but he's kind of like the Billy Graham of his day, where, you know, pretty much everybody looked to him and admired him and respected Athanasius. Whether you were in Spain or, or whether you were in England or Germany or Egypt or Syria, pretty much everybody respected Athanasius. He was the premier leader of the church in his day. But So he's going to send out this letter saying, we affirm that all 27 of these books are holy and God-breathed. And that pretty much seals the deal for all the churches in the Eastern Empire and a, a few decades later in the Western Empire it's what's called the Synod of Hippo and does anyone know what Augustine is usually called Augustine of Hippo? He's the Bishop of the City of Hippo in Africa so this Synod is being convened under his auspices. Uh, they are going to affirm Athanasius' festal letter and say that yes, all 27 of these books are accepted by the church, no questions asked. So what that tells us is, even though early on we can see all of these books being accepted by the church, or most of them, I should say, by the year 400, so within 300 years of the closing of the canon, definitively all 27 are accepted by the church. So, But again, we know that most, if not all of them, were being used in the churches er, almost immediately. But now it's throughout the empire, throughout the Christian world, they all agree, these are the books, this is the canon. Nothing more and nothing less will be accepted as the word of God. So that's, that's sort of the, the, the rough sketch of the... Uh, the historical development on a church-wide scale of how the books what we know of how the books came to be accepted and obviously we don't have everything for example the Muratorian fragment is called a fragment for a reason because we just have a a chunk of it it's a very old old document that is falling apart and you know it's now in a vacuum case in a museum but you know from that we were able to get the list in fact even on that list on the fragment it doesn't list two of the gospels because the part of the page is missing however the room is there where the gospels would have been like you know the shape of the piece missing out of the page you know something was written there so we're assuming that two of the gospels were, were mentioned there so we you know there's a good reason anyway don't need to go down that rabbit hole There are other ways, though, in which we can look back to the church and see what they asserted as inspired by the word of of God. And that is how you, when you, pretty quickly, the church starts to have other things besides the scriptures itself. Not that they are holding these up as with this anywhere near the same authority, but people are writing about the scriptures so, very early on, you have church leaders writing about books of the Bible or writing about apologetics, like against Roman religion or against the Gnostics or against this or that or the other, or writing to churches and saying, We know you're hurting. God told us this here and, you know, persevere in faith kind of a thing, you know, encouraging letters. All of this different literature, a lot of it still exists. And these church fathers are citing scripture. Now they're not saying, you know, Luke 4.15 because that kind of enumeration hasn't even taken place yet. But when we read what they say, we can recognize the quotes from scripture and what they're saying. I mean, we can see, we know these verses. We know what the Bible says. So we can see it when they say it. And if they are writing these things and citing this as scripture, that's a big clue to us that they accepted these books. Now, most of these books are never in dispute. So when they cite a gospel, that's not a big surprise. But when they cite Hebrews very early on in the history of the church, that's a big clue that early on in the history of the church, they saw Hebrews as being authoritative. Does that make sense? So, and I give a couple of examples on the bottom half of the second page <coughs> um so Hebrews is not mentioned as I note there in the Marcionite canon or in the Muratorian fragment. However, it is mentioned or quoted by Clement of Alexandria or Origen and Tertullian. Tertullian is an incredibly influential Theologian of the church. He's one of the first real theologians. He's the guy that coins the word Trinity in trying in in describing the nature of God and tr- and describing the Trinity. It's Tertullian who is going to be the first to do so, I, and especially to do so in in a, in a way and in language that we today would recognize. Uh, and guess where he's from? North Africa. Um, <clears throat> so. Uh, but Tertullian was writing around the year 200. Origen's going to be writing around the year 250. And Clement of Alexandria is going to be writing around 170. So the fact that early on you have these church fathers, and not nobodies in the church. I mean, it doesn't get bigger than Tertullian. Tertullian. Uh, the fact that they are writing these things and citing these these books as authoritative and inspired by the word of God is further evidence that early on they were accepted within the canon. They were believed to be inspired. I mean, you know, to have been inspired and were to be used as an authority. Another one (coughs) is Jude that I mentioned there. Now, Jude is it's a, Jude is amazing in, in terms of how widely attested, and there, let me backtrack before I move on. Hebrews is mentioned in other church fathers as well, but those were just some really significant ones to use as examples. Like I said, if we wanted to dissect each of these to a really granular level, we'd never leave because there's so many quotations scattered throughout the church fathers. Uh, <coughs> so this is just an effort to give you a taste of what kind of affirmation is out there. So Jude, even though it's a short book, is widely attested to throughout the early church writings. And when I say writings, because some of it's not even church fathers that are are writing it. And even though Jude was disputed by many, early on, the most significant writings of the early church all incorporate Jude, especially Jude's Amazing doxology at the end, 24 and 25. It's probably my favorite passage in all of the Bible. Uh, that's used heavily. And so it's, it's being used, Jude is being used by Clement of Rome, who is writing before 100, before AD 100. So within the first century, within the first 70 years of the church, Clement of Rome, who is one of the most influential post-apostolic leaders of the church is citing Jude as inspired. Also, you have three works that were incredibly influential in the early church. You have what's called the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, and the Epistle of Barnabas, or the Letter of Barnabas. Some people think, I mean, some people back then thought that all three of those at various times and in various places were inspired. So to be, for Jude to be affirmed in all three of those is a st- very strong attestation that the church, even early on, believed that it was authentic and inspired. But it's not just those. He's mentioned by Polycarp. You know who Polycarp is? Polycarp was a disciple of John. That means... The man who, who he was a leader of the church who sat at the feet of the Apostle John believed that Jude was inspired because he's quoting it as, as scripture. Uh, Clement of Alexandria that I al- already mentioned as well as Tertullian and Origen also affirm or quote Jude which is an implicit affirmation of its inspiration. So again, even these disputed books very early on, the church is or specific parts of the church are affirming it as inspired. so there really is no room to quibble there. I mean, you have the lists, you have the church fathers, and then you have a third piece of hard historical evidence, and that is the actual manuscripts that we have that uh, you know the early church manuscripts. Now, we don't have a lot from really early on, but those that we do generally affirm these disputed books. So, for example, like the most prominent example of this is what we call P-46. It's also called, you may have heard of the Chester Beatty Papyrus. P-46 is the earliest Greek manuscript that we have. Keep in mind, the whole New Testament is written in Greek. So... When we talk about the Gospel of Thomas and all of these other non-canonical works, this is just a digression here, but one of, the thing, one of the big clues, one of the obvious clues, is that they're not written in Greek. For example, the Gospel of Thomas, which is the most famous of them, is written in what we call Coptic. So you've heard of Coptic Christians. <clears throat> they're, they live in Egypt. Technically, I hate to say it, they're heretics. They deny, uh, they're not Chalcedonian Christians. They deny that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. So, but Coptic is also a language that they speak that's descended from ancient Egyptian. And the Coptic, so but these other gospels, what we often call the Gnostic gospels, which some people try to say should be held up as equal to the other 27 books of the New Testament, are not written in Greek. That's just a clue right off the bat that these are something different. There's a lot of other things when you read them, and we're going to get into that here in a, in a little bit. There's a lot of other things that set them apart from the other 27 books of the New Testament. But my point is, going back to P46, that this manuscript was, or was written around the year 200, and it's the earliest... Extant copy that we have of Paul's letters. So the earliest fragment we have of the New Testament is what's called P52, or P46. Am I saying, now I'm getting myself confused. P52. I'm talking about P46 is with Paul. P52. P stands for Papyrus. P52 is called the Rylands Papyrus. And it's a fragment of the Gospel of Mark. And that is the earliest extant piece of the New Testament that we have. And it dates from about 140. But that's neither here nor there. P46 dates from about the year 200. What's significant about it? Well, it's the first example, the first extant copy we have of Paul's letters. But Hebrews is included in them. So they would not be including the book of Hebrews if they did not believe that it was inspired word of God. Whether you believe Paul wrote it or not, the fact that the church included it with Paul's letters was a strong indication that they believed it was inspired. So by the year 200, you have written physical evidence of Hebrews being included in the scriptures that were already strongly affirmed to be the word of God. Does that make sense? Like we have that in our hands. I mean you can't touch it now because it's in a vacuum case and you can look at it, but you, but you know what I mean, in our hands, figuratively speaking. So <coughs> that, you, have these, you have the three proofs that show the development and early affirmation of the authenticity of the 27 books of the New Testament. At the latest, the canon was formed before the year 400. So at the earliest, there's a pretty strong indication that it was within a few generations of the closing of the canon, that the whole 27 book New Testament was being used by the church, or at least parts of the church. So <coughs> any questions before I move on to the last part in closing? And if you have questions afterwards, you can, you can ask me then too. So, um. Okay, so on the third page, uh, I want to go a little more theological now. Um, And and this is where I want to circle back to the scripture being, uh, you know, the ultimate canon is Jesus Christ. And the scripture is just pointing us to him. And I don't mean that to say that it's not authoritative or anything like that, but it's really Jesus Christ himself that is, he is the sum of the 27 books of the New Testament. He is, He is the canon. You think of the first, the opening of Hebrews, <clears throat> and how does it start? But it says, you know, this is not verbatim, because don't ask me to do anything verbatim. Um, you know, in, in the early days, the Lord spoke to us through prophets. But now, in, in the present day, he has spoken to us through what? A son. So that is the rev- Jesus Christ is the greatest revelation of God. The scriptures flow from God. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the greatest revelation. So the prophets revealed what? The scriptures. Okay? Those the, the scriptures are the fruit of the prophets. But God chose to speak to us through a son. So we have to keep everything in its proper place. We are not, we don't want to be what some people have called bibolators, where we worship the Bible instead of worshiping the the Son of God that the Bible points us to. And that's in, in, in no way to diminish the Word of God. You understand that? I am not in any way diluting or diminishing or trying to, or anything like that, the Bible. I am trying to lift it up because it's really, we don't have faith in a Bible, we have faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible is the revelation of him to us but it's pointing us to him. So, <clears throat> anyway, with that being said, I want to talk about just three uh, principles that, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, So I want to talk about three principles that where the the Bible is I don't want to say self-authenticating, but that it's not just history. There's spirit present in this. So how do we know what the spirit is? I mean what what that authentication of the spirit is? How do we how do we we've talked about in in brief how the church in the past came to know what the canon was, how do we today know what the canon is? I mean, if people want to say that the Gospel of Thomas should be part of the canon, well, how do we know that it's not? I mean, how do we argue against that? What On what basis do we argue against that being a part of the Bible? So there's three principles that I think should guide us as we defend the canon today and in this postmodern world that we live in where everything is relative I assure you there are people right now and not a few of them that want to open the canon they want to change the books of the Bible okay so this is not just an exercise this is a threat to the church that is present right now so the first principle is the one that we have already discussed, which is the history of the church affirms what the canon is. So we don't need to go into that. That's pretty self-explanatory. The second principle, though, is where the scriptures themselves are self-authenticating. Are they in concord with each other are they good and holy and pure? Are they, as I, as I wrote there, have they reveal, revealed redemption, moved readers to devotion in God, provoked piety, and satisfied the souls of those who have longed after God? Something that's not inspired by the word of God Or inspired by the Holy Spirit and is the Word of God, I'm sorry for misspeaking, I'm not not trying to be a heretic, is not going to satisfy souls. Only that which is of the Spirit, which is testifying to Jesus Christ, is going to satisfy souls. So that is a test. And, And that is a critically important test. When we talk about all of Scripture, should inform on all of Scripture in terms of understanding how a verse is to be understood. This is, that is a part of this principle. That hermeneutic, that form of interpretation is touching on this self-authenticating aspect of Scripture. Because if If Scripture itself is not self-authenticating, then at some point it's going to be out of concord with itself. And therefore, that is a clue and a big right beacon to us that it's not Scripture. So the Gospel of Thomas, or even something that is explicitly Christian, like the Shepherd of Hermas, which was an early pastoral letter, or the letter of Barnabas, something that is Christian, in no way is it not Christian. It does not rise to that level that the rest of scripture does. Even the Holy Spirit does not provoke a satisfied soul from reading that. It can edify us, but it's not spiritually satisfying that the way scripture is. And the church has then left it out. <clears throat> so the last principle in some ways is a repeat of the first principle, but it's, it's broadening it and drawing it all the way back to the to the beginning to God and that is the church has affirmed that these 27 books are scripture but what is the church the church is the body of Christ the church is not just a historical thing it's it is it is the bride of Christ it is the spirit-filled group of believers that someday we'll be in the presence of God and will be his bride and his body for eternity. And so as each believer assents to to the recognition that these books, each book individually and all the 27 books as a whole, as we assent to that, to the recognition that, yes, God wrote this, then as each of us individually do that, then so too does the body of Christ. And so God, through his Holy Spirit, is moving hearts to recognize what is and is not authentically authored by God himself. So it, it's, it's a very broad, very deep, very historical, very personal, but also very spiritual authentication. The fact that we are all here now, we have all, each one of us, whether we know it or not, have felt the movement of the spirit and assented to the affirmation that these books are true and are inspired and are authoritative for our lives and for the church so I'll end on that Um, you can see my little epilogue there in section B Um, the scriptures are their own witness so they, they witness unto themselves and, and souls are moved by them. And that is the, that is the strongest witness. So I hope that's a helpful sketch, really. I mean, there's obviously a lot more to say on this subject, but I hope that's a helpful sketch to understand how the church came to recognize what the scriptures are, what the, new te- the 27 books of the New Testament are uh obviously, I did not go into the Old Testament, I did not go into the Apocrypha um you know, so there's a lot more to say on this subject, and I'd be happy to talk about it at some point, but this is a beginning, so from here on, we're going to now be looking at the church itself, the history of the church, so the the cloud of witnesses that have come before us are you going are you or uh, Larry going next? Larry will be next week, okay, so so we'll be beginning that movement chronologically now through the church, having established the, uh, the authority of the scriptures as a, a foundation for the church. So I hope you'll stay with us and, and join us through this. It's gonna, I think it's going to be a really good class as we come to understand the history of our church, how this church, these, all of us here in this room came to be here because somebody else led us to the Lord. And somebody led them to the Lord and somebody led them to the Lord. And that goes all the way back to Christ himself. And what, who are those people? I mean, who, what, what has the church been doing? Well, we're all here because of what they've been doing. So we're going to talk about that. So uh, I'll just end with that. And uh, let me close with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord, thank you, that you have given, for all the gifts you have given us that you have given us the church, that you have given us your word, that you have given us life, mostly that you have given us the Spirit, your Son, and all the blessings that flow from that. In your name we pray. Amen.